0: Last week, we began a series asking the question, what is it about Christianity that worked? Why did Christianity succeed? You know, when you consider the tens of thousands of gods that people would worship in the ancient world, what was it about this Christian God that beat all of them? How is it that Christianity came to take over the Roman Empire? Because when you think about it, it's really a remarkable thing. You've got this world that has been so entrenched in polytheism and the, the tens of thousands of very powerful, seemingly powerful gods that control the world, and yet there's one single saviour, this crucified carpenter comes along c- claiming to be God, and people say, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. So much so that you know we saw these numbers last week where Christianity goes from something like a 1,000 Christians perhaps uh, at the end of uh, around 40 CE to something like 5 or 6 million Christians spread in every major city by about the year 300. I mean, how does that happen? How do we go from uh, within 250 years, this obscure little cult out in the eastern fringes of the empire to this religion that is maybe 10% of the world's population or of the, of the Roman Empire's population. It's just mind-boggling, that sort of success story. How does that come about? More than that, of all of the religious cults that you find in the ancient world, that you find in the Roman Empire, Christianity of all of them is the only one that the Romans tried to eradicate. Uh, so many thousands of gods and cults and Practices and groups and organizations, and yet the Romans singled out Christianity as the only one to try to destroy. What was it about this little group? What was the threat that they presented? Uh, Nothing, no other group, spread and grew like Christianity. Most groups didn't grow, it just wasn't something that happened. Yet Christians didn't just grow, they exploded over these couple of hundred years. And more than that, the fact that of all of the different groups that uh, existed or emerged within the Roman Empire, Christianity is the only one to have outlived the empire. It's the only remnant of what was this vast Roman Empire that lasted for 2,000 years. And so what was it about them? Why? What set them apart from everybody else? What was their appeal? Well last week one of the suggestions was that Christianity only had one god. And in a world where you have tens of thousands of gods from all covering every different aspect of your existence, the fact that there's one god who does all of it. That in and of itself is really remarkable. When you consider the simplicity of well I've got a thousand gods doing a thousand different things, or I've got one God who does all those thousand things, who's in control of all of those things, that's much simpler. That makes a heck of a lot more sense. And so that in and of itself, the simplicity of that in and of itself was very appealing and is some of the explanation for the growth of Christianity. But even more than that, it's the assurance of, that this God brings, and this is the second thing I want to look at today. It's the fact that this God brings you a sense of assurance of where you stand with Him, what it is that you, where where you are in life. You know, if we think about it as humans, one of the things that we're always looking for is assurance. If we're about to set out and do a project, or if we're about to invest something, or particularly something of great value we want to know that it's going to work. You know, there's always a, a little bit of an adventurous element to humans. We always like a little bit of the unknown and a bit of a bit of risk. And it's that's true, more true in some than others. You know, if you're anything like me, you don't like risk. Um, I, I, I like to know that everything's going to work out exactly as I intend it to before I do anything because I want to be assured that this isn't going to blow up in my face. And, and so there's always that Part of us as humans, we, we just want to know that things are going to be okay. And so for, any, for all of us at all times, we, we want to find ways to help mitigate the circumstances. We, we want to know, we, we want to be able to have some sense of control over the circumstances to somehow try to manipulate them to our particular ends. And so for ancient people, this is what the gods do. The gods are an explanation for the things that we can't explain. They're an explanation for the powers and the forces that are at work around us that we can't see and that we can't ideally control. And so what we do then is we say, well, take the weather for example. Well, the weather is obviously very powerful. The weather can be good to us or it can be very bad to us. And so we don't know what is going on in the heavens and in the skies but if we can somehow contain it if we can somehow define it uh, put a put a face to it and then ask that power what it is that it wants from us then we can give it what it wants and then ideally control it we can at least find its favor we can we, we can make it feel good towards us so that the power that it has which is the weather will be good for us and so if you look at every element of your life and all of the things that we can explain now by science. If you think about disease, for example, well, obviously disease is something we can't see. And that was true for all of the history of diseases. Well, in the ancient world, you can't see it, but you know, its effects. Well, and we certainly, we know that it's ultimate effects in many cases is death. So what do we need to do? We need to control it. We need to at least somehow try to keep it at bay Well, find out the God that's responsible for it, articulate that God, find out what it wants, and ideally keep it happy enough that it doesn't kill us with its power, with this disease that is currently killing us. And so how do you do this? This is what is the big question. This is what gods are are so important for to be able to articulate, is that by articulating them, we can ask them what they want. We can keep them under control. We can gain for ourselves some sort of assurance in whatever this God is and whatever this God does. Well, there were two key ways that you could get the favor of the gods. The first way, and we talked a bit about this last week, is that you would celebrate a festival every year for that particular God. Now, every God from the smallest gods to the the great patron gods and goddesses of a city will have some sort of annual celebration. Now, with some of the smaller household gods, there might be a daily offering. Uh, there, there'd always be a god of the pantry, for example. And so every day you would offer it a small piece of food, and that would be your way of trying to guarantee that there would be provision in your household. So every god has its own different requirements. And typically these took place once a year. So there'd be a festival. So take Athens, for example. In Athens, you worship as your primary patron goddess, the god Athena. Well, every year there'll be a a week or two-week-long celebration of her, and that would be a great festival that all of the city would participate in. Now, this was a great time. It was a great celebration. It was some time off work, if you could afford it. Um, And there was free food, and there was just it was entertainment, there was all sorts of great celebrations that went along with this festival. But at the core of it, the real point of this festival was trying to buy or try to earn Athena's favor. Find out from the priests what it is that she wants, bring the the right sacrifice, do the right celebration. And having done that, you get the sense of assurance that you've got Athena's favor for the next year. You, uh, this, of course, there's no guarantees in life, but you know, you feel like you've done everything she requires. She's happy now. She'll stay off our backs for the next 12 months. She might even bless us. She might even bring some, some favor from the power that she has. And so we've got that reassurance now from her, for our city, that things are going to be okay. So that's one of the chief ways that not just individuals, but societies as well will try to gain, gain for themselves that assurance. But then throughout the course of the year, things happen. A year is a long time. Lots of things can happen. Lots of things can go wrong. And so what happens in those circumstances where something has gone wrong in your life or in the life of the city? Well, you need to turn to the God. This was unexpected, but we have a God for that. And so we appeal to that God and we say, hey, what is it that you need? Or what have we done to offend you? Have, has somebody done something wrong? Have we done something wrong? Why are you angry with us that you're causing this to happen? And so you would you would uh, find out what that is and then you would make an offering for it. You would ask for that God's favor, for that God to maybe back off whatever it is that they're doing or to alternatively bring favor from the power that they have. So for example, you might be going on a sea journey. You're going to cross the Mediterranean for whatever reason. And so that's a dangerous thing. Sea travel's always been dangerous, particularly in the ancient world. And so you need the the favor of the god of the ocean, who in this case is Poseidon. So you'll go to Poseidon's temple and you'll say, okay, Poseidon, I'm going on this journey. We're going to offer you this particular – well, if, if we are successful, if we're fruitful in our endeavors, when we return, we're going to give you a portion of whatever it is that we bring back. And so you, you've you made that vow and uh, that gives you a sense of assurance. You would hope that you've done enough, you've promised enough. And so when you return, you would absolutely fulfill whatever it is that you're, uh, you're going to do. And so this is the way that you approach the gods or this is the way that you sort of you live your life you have the gods around you that are going to give you the requirements so if you're particularly if you're in a, a a coastal city you're right next to the ocean one of the primary gods you're going to worship is Poseidon because you've got his oceans right next to you so whatever you needs you have you would have a god for that now in some cases there might be a need that arises that you don't have a god for There might be a certain disease that you've never seen before. And so you would say to the priests, you know, what's going on? What do we need here? And they say, well, there's a God down in Egypt, for example. And so you would go down to Egypt and you would bring this God back to the city as a way of trying to deal with this disease. And this would be something that happens quite often, particularly when you consider as the Roman Empire spreads and the Romans are being exposed and introduced to many different ancient gods in all of these different cultures, these gods offer things that the Romans don't have gods for. And so they would bring them back to Rome. And so Rome becomes really a melting pot of all of the different religions and gods that are available throughout their great empire. So this is what we're doing. This is how you come to try to mitigate the circumstances of your life and the things that are going on around you. So who are these gods? Well, last week we introduced the idea of the Olympian gods. These are the primary gods of the Greek world, and they live on Mount Olympus, hence the name Olympian gods. But these are the primary ones. These are the big gods who control the biggest elements of our life. Now, at the top of Greek gods, the the father of these Olympian gods, literally the father in many cases, is the god Zeus. Zeus is the primary chief god of the Greek world. And he finds an equivalent in all ancient cultures. In, In Rome, he's the god Jupiter. And so when the Romans... Come in, encounter the Greek world. They see Zeus. They say we've got Jupiter. He's he's one and the same thing. And so they realise that they're just worshiping the same god with a different name. Uh, if you look back in the Old Testament, when you look at the Canaanite lands, you've got the god Baal. Well, or if you look in uh, in in um, in Egypt, you've got the god Horus. Or even if you look at later on in Viking culture, you've got the god Thor or Indra in the Indian context, where, wherever, you're, wherever you find yourself, you've got this one chief God who is the God above all. And what he is responsible for is the weather. So if you think about ancient societies before the industrial revolution, we uh, all c- civilizations were agrarian. What that means is that the majority of the human population lives and works on the land. Maybe 80 to 90% of all humans live and work on the land prior to the Industrial Revolution. And the reason why everyone lives and works on the land is because they're producing food. In a time before industrialization, everyone is laboring with their own hands to produce food because food is is, is the one thing that's keeping us alive. Without food, we all die. Now, what is it that food requires to grow? Well, it needs weather. It needs good weather. You need rains at the right times. You need sun at the right times. Because if you don't have these at the right times and in the right seasons, you don't have any food, we all die. We all starve to death. So weather is absolutely crucial to our very existence. We cannot exist without good weather. And so at the top then of the gods is going to be the God of weather that is going to be the most important thing that you can worship because he is the one who is really quite literally keeping us alive. Now, this God, Zeus, Jupiter, whoever he is, certainly in the Greek and Roman world, will be married to, in the Greek world, Zeus is married to Hera. And in the Roman world, Jupiter is married to Juno. Now, in the Greek context, Zeus is... The hus- Zeus and, and Hera are husband and wife, but they're also brother and sister. It's uh, very creepy in the God's world. But Hera, or Juno, is attached to childbirth and attached to marriage. She's the goddess of childbearing, which is the other most essential thing for survival. We need good weather to provide food in order to live, in order to not starve to death, but we also need kids. We also need to have children in order to survive, in order that the human race will continue. And so these are the two chief God and goddess, and they become literally the parents then of many of the other gods that we encounter. So one of their children in the Greek world is Ares. In the Roman world, his equivalent is the God Mars. Now this God is the God of war. Now, he's more prominent in Rome than what he is in the Greek world. And that kind of explains, that makes sense when you consider that Rome was a warring civilization. They were, uh, they were they were a military state. So for Romans, this is a particularly important god to worship. In fact, the very history of the Roman world or Rome itself stems from the god Mars, This is going back, obviously back into mythology, but many thousands of years prior, um, Mars, the god Mars, raped uh, Rhea Silvia. So Rhea Silvia was the princess of a place called Alba Longa. And so she had been consigned to become a vestal virgin. What that means is that she would never be able to be with a man. But then Mars comes along and rapes her. And so the children, the offspring of this, rape were romulus and remus so romulus goes on to found rome and the rest is history so the very origins of rome's story stem from the god mars now mars being the god of war he becomes a primary god they worship in fact just outside the field just outside rome itself you would find what was known as the field of mars And what that was was a place where you'd go out to worship him. So before every army goes out from Rome to conquer and to do what they're going to do, they go to the field of Mars and they offer a sacrifice to him. And therefore he uh, will hopefully give them good uh, success, good luck in their endeavours to whatever it is that they're about to set out to do. In fact, it's such a prominent God that we still – Encounter him today. Now, the way that it works in the ancient world is that in springtime you go off to war. Spring is you've come out of winter, um, you've sown for the new harvest. It's now springtime. Spring moves into into fall or into autumn, and for that six month period, there's not a lot to do. the The fields are growing. the seed, The seed is growing the weather hopefully is good and it's providing the water that's required for those seeds to grow but there's not a whole lot to do. And so what you would find in this season is that people would go off to war. In fact, we read this obscure little verse in 2 Samuel 11 that says in the springtime when kings go off to war. And it's a funny little verse and we always we think about that story as being the reason why David goes and sleeps with Bathsheba. But that little reference there to it's just what kings do cities and states will go off to war in the springtime because that's just what you do (laughs) You're, you're you're looking to gain for yourself more plunder more slaves whatever it is that you're you're needing and so you go down and you start a war and if you win you get the spoils of that battle well in the northern hemisphere of course spring begins in march and for the roman calendar in fact march was the beginning of the new year so Mars comes to give his name to that month because that's the month when we come to worship him to celebrate him in order to then go off to war and hopefully he brings us that success. But there are other gods too. We've got the god, goddess Athena. Now her equivalent in Rome is Minerva. Now so Athena, of course, is, gives the name to the city of Athens and so she's the goddess of wisdom the goddess of courage, inspiration, civilization, law, and justice, which makes a lot of sense because this is what Athens is known for. So whereas for Rome, their primary god is Mars, well, over in uh, Athens, the primary goddess is Athena, hence the name is given to her, and it's from Athens that we find the great philosophers, the Socrates coming out, or we find democracy emerging. All of this is happening in Athens, and it's attributed to the, the primary, the, the patron goddess that they worship, Athena. Now, I mean, all of these gods have their own sort of funny background stories of, of how they came to be. Uh, this one, this is a particularly funny one. So Zeus, he's married to Hera, but he has a lot of other women that he is in relationship with. He's got lots of girlfriends around the place. And so uh, he, in this particular circumstance, Um, he has a relationship with uh, a a goddess by the name of Metis. And it's prophesied that this child, the child that is born to Metis from Zeus, is going to uh, come to overthrow Zeus. And so to deal with that, Zeus eats Metis, uh, just eats this girlfriend of his, this lover of his, and thinks that that's dealt with the problem. Well, anyway, he goes on about his merry way. But then nine months later, Zeus finds that he's got this splitting headache, this absolutely shocking headache like nothing he's ever experienced before. And so he goes to his brother Hephaestus, who's the god of metalworking and, and, and blacksmiths, and he says, you've you got to help me. You've got to fix this problem. And so, uh, so um, Hephaestus comes with his axe and he smashes Zeus over the head and out pops Athena. Fully grown, fully formed in battle armor, ready to go. And it's it's a very bizarre story, but as we you sort of explore these guys, they all seem to have these same sorts of background stories around them. Very bizarre, very strange things going on there. But then you've got other gods, like for example, Aphrodite or Venus in the Roman world of the goddess fertility and vegetation uh Hephaestus who we just met the the brother there of Zeus sorry son of Zeus in here I apologize and and Vulcan in the Roman world well he's the god of blacksmiths craftsmen artisan metallurgist fire so very important god because you need fire fire is what provides heat and energy and light and and all of these things uh Poseidon for example or Neptune is his equivalent in Rome the god of sea and also the god of earthquakes so we can go through the whole list we won't do that here but you can see how these gods are important. If you attach all of the big forces and powers in the world that are so essential to life, then you expect that there's going to be a God attached to that so that we can somehow mitigate, somehow control the effects of what this particular God does. Well, there's, the one God that we really want to focus in on today, and the one that becomes important for our story, is the God Apollo. Now, Apollo, uh, like most of the gods, is the son of um, of, of Zeus, and uh, well, Zeus, but also one of his many girlfriends. Now, Apollo, he's the God of many, many, many things. Uh, he's the God of healing and diseases. Um, now, what that, he could, both send disease as well as heal you from them. So he was kind of both the uh, the poisoner and the doctor. Um, he becomes the father of, of, of Asclepius that we're going to meet next week. Uh, but he's also the god of sun and light. He's the god of health and the education of children. In fact, it's Apollo who presides over the passage into, childhood, or sorry, into adulthood. So young Greek boys would have long hair, but once they become men, or once they go through that, um, that becoming men, the, the, the coming of age, that, that hair would be cut off. Uh, and this was then, and then offered as an offering to Apollo. Uh, he presides over music, songs, dance, poetry. Um, he's the inventor of string music. Uh, so he's a frequent companion of the muses. Um, he functions as a chorus leader in celebrations. Um, he's also the God of truth and importantly, the God of prophecy. So this God has a vast range of features and a vast range of um, uh, jobs in, in everyday society. But one of his chief characteristics that he's known for is prophecy. He's a messenger. He's a spokesman for what the gods want, and particularly for Zeus. What is, what is it that the gods are doing? And so trying to – if you want to get an insight into what's going on, what the gods are doing – Apollo is the person that you would come and speak to. Now, like all the gods as well, he's got his own particular backstory. So his story goes back to Zeus and the affair that he has with another goddess by the name of Leto. So Zeus is doing his normal thing. And so Leto falls pregnant, as it turns out, with twins. So Apollo and his twin sister, Artemis. Now, Hera the wife of the true wife of zeus finds out what's going on that leto has had this relationship with her husband and so she condemns leto she's forbidden to be able to give birth on land she, she she can't stay on land to give birth to these children which effectively renders her in, unable then to have the children uh, and so to ensure this hera sends a python now the Python, being the child of the Earth, the child of Gaia, to kill Leto just to ensure that this birth doesn't take place. Well, anyway, the island of Delos says, "Hey, you know what? Don't worry about, don't worry about Hera. Come over to our island. You can give birth over here." Which she promptly does. So then uh, uh, Leto gives birth, and the first of the children to come out is Artemis, and so Artemis pops out, and then promptly turns around as a young child as a baby turns around and helps her mother give birth to Apollo. So Artemis in fact goes on to be the god of midwifery. Now she remains a virgin throughout her entire life but she's also the god of childbirth. So that re- that sort of becomes her chief uh, her, her chief task <laughs> as as the goddess. But uh, Apollo he is now born and well, he wants to get vengeance on the snake, on this python who had been sent by Gaia to, to – by the mother to uh, – sorry, by Leto to uh, – sorry, um, by Hera then to kill them. Um, so after four days – so Apollo is four days old, uh, but he's fully grown now. He's ready to go. And so he sets off and he's, he kills this python. Now, having killed the child of a god, he needs to go and cleanse himself, which he promptly does, but then he returns back and he claims the site of, of, of this python, where he's killed this python, he claims that site for himself. Now, where that's relevant to our story is that that particular site is a place called Delphi, and so Delphi then becomes his primary sanctuary, now, this becomes an incredibly important festival, this, um, this f- uh, f- festival to Apollo, so much so, in fact, that they set a set, a, uh, a set of games to it. Now, we talked a few weeks ago uh, about the Panhellenic Games, and you've got the Isthmian Games, the Olympic Games, the, is- the is- Isthmian Games, L- Olympic Games, Nemean Games, and then the fourth one is the Pythian Games. And so these particular games are held in honor of this god Apollo and to celebrate this, his defeating the Python, the, hence the Pythian games. So these games are established after he slay the dragon and they become an incredible become a very important part of the Roman ca- uh, of the Greek calendar. But the other chief characteristic of this sanctuary is that it becomes a center of pilgrimage. And this is where the story really uh, ties back into what we we're talking about, this idea of assurance. How do you know what the gods want? How can you find out? Well, one of the ways that you can find out is to go and ask Apollo. And so what this becomes now for people, particularly within Greece, but even from around the world who hear about this, is that you'll make a journey to this sanctuary for the sole purpose then of asking Apollo what's going on? What do I need to do? What, what is, what's happening? That uh, I, How do I need to respond to? or how, what, what do I need to do to make a decision? So I've got this opportunity. Should I do it? Um, you know, this is girl I want to ask to marry me. Should I ask her? Is she going to say yes? Whatever, whatever it is that I need to get some assurance about, you go and ask Apollo and he's, he's hopefully going to give you some sort of answer to your question. So what does this involve? What's the process? Well, there's four key steps to making your appeal to, to Apollo. The first one is to get there. So you have to make the journey to Delphi, which is going to be a long journey. Even if you live in Greece itself, you've still got a long way to travel because you're generally traveling on foot or if you're wealthy, maybe on horseback, but that's going to take a bit of time. So not a, very few people can even make the journey itself because you can't be away from your business for that long. So that journey in and of itself is part of the process. But then once you get there, you need to be prepared. Uh, And so you would arrive at the sanctuary. And if you want to get an idea of what this sanctuary looks like or or what it looks like today, check out the video this week on YouTube. And uh, it's actually shot on site in Delphi just to give you an idea of what this place is like. It's really a, it's a beautiful, really beautiful location. So you would approach the priests and they would interview you in preparation uh, before you approach the God, you need to make sure that you're doing everything correctly. And so they would find out what it is that you want. What's your case? What is the question you want to bring? And they, they would sort sorting out the genuine cases. These are the sorts of things that the God can answer. And these are the sorts of things that you just have to figure out for yourself. And so then you would have to practice. So you've got to frame the question right. You've got to ask it in a particular way to get the sort of answer that you're looking for. And you can already start to get a sense that they're really setting you up. They're really setting you up for almost a guaranteed outcome. Let's weed out the questions that might be a bit too hard to answer. Um, That's the God can help you with that question, but you just got to ask it the right way. And then you've got to bring an offering with all of these gods, they require an offering. And so there'll be a gift that you would bring to, to, to offer to the Oracle, um, absolutely essential. And then you proceed along the sacred way. So you begin to make your approach to the temple itself. So then you would approach the, the oracle. You would see so that what you would find in the temple itself was an oracle. Now, the oracle was a, um, well, we'll get to that in a moment. So you, you would approach the oracle, you'd be led into the temple, and as you walk past or as you're walking towards the, the oracle itself, you, uh, you'd see these little maxims written on the columns around through the temple. Things like nothing in excess or certainty brings insanity or know thyself. In other words, know your limitations, know your place when you're into into the temple, know your limitations to understanding. And so already you're being set up for uncertainty. You you were set up, uh, you know, the very idea of Having certainty brings insanity. So don't seek certainty. But that's the whole reason why I came. I came here to find certainty around a question, but now I'm being told that I don't really want to be certain because that's going to bring insanity. So already they're just trying to lower the expectations. <clears throat> they're trying to make it really clear that you just don't really want to know for sure because, you know, if we're being honest, you're still not going to know for sure when when you walk out of here. But then you would approach the Oracle or, or the Pythia and you would present your question now who's the pythia who's the oracle that you're approaching well it's it's a young girl typically always a virgin but typically from the local area and she was sort of brought from the village she was to function as the oracle and she'd be seated on a tripod now what they found in the the location where this temple is is that it is actually over a fault line in in the ground, and what would emanate from this was these toxic gases coming from the ground underneath, and so this oracle would be seated, this Pythia would be seated above these gases, and they would really be causing her to be high. She was actually quite literally in a state of uh, of insanity. Um, so she would be babbling and carrying on in these un discernible words and that would she would be therefore giving the answer from the gods it would be speaking literally in the tongues of the god now the only way that you can understand what it is that she was saying is that those words need to be interpreted and so what would happen she'd be going into frenzy she'd be saying all of these things and then the priests around her would be listening and that they would bring the interpretation of whatever this is which again it's just the uh the the sense of um almost trying to control the outcome here, almost, well, you know, don't look for too much certainty, frame your question in a certain way, and we're going to interpret this babble that you can't otherwise understand. The words from the God themselves you can't hear, but we can understand it because we can interpret it ourselves. And so they would give you the interpretation of whatever it is that she said. But what it was was typically something like a poem. It was some sort of uh, obscure um, riddle that you almost had to work out. there was no no clarity in the answer. It was just a a poem or something that you you can kind of interpret for yourself. It could It could mean a number of different things. And so you would be given this very obscure response from the God, and then you'd be sent on your way. you you would have to then go home and figure it out for yourself or put into action whatever you think, it is that the God is trying to say to you. And so you would go and you would do what you think is the action that the God's telling you. And if it works out, well, then you interpret it right. You interpreted it correctly. You you figured it out. You understood what it was. You did it right. And so the circumstances have proven that you understood it. But if it doesn't work out, well, you didn't you didn't apply it properly. You didn't understand it properly. And so there's no real way of verifying whether the God did the job or not. If it worked out, the God was right. But if the, it didn't work out, well, you did it wrong. You misunderstood it. That, that's actually on you. So there's no, it's, it's almost a foolproof system. Now, it all sounds a bit bit bizarre. It all sounds a bit, well, it, it sounds like a real sham, which is really what it was. But you've got to then consider that this is what this, this is the best this world has to offer. This is absolutely the the most assurance you can ever possibly have in this world is that, this obscure, unclear, uncertain response, and that's the most certainty you can ever possibly have from the gods. Well, along comes Christianity, and it says, hey, you know what? Not only do we have one God, this God makes it really clear where we stand with him, what he wants from us. Now, this is a true for the Jewish people as well. And this is what made the Jewish people so unique was that, again, their God made it really clear what he wants. This God had said to them, if you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you fail to do these things, you'll be cursed. And to make it really clear what his desires were, he wrote them down for us. He said, here's who I am. Here's what I want. I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. This is how you do it. I'm not going to change my mind. And if I do change my mind, I'll let you know. But until then, I'm not going to change my mind. And so this scripture becomes central to the life of the Jewish people because this is the fixed, unchanging will of God made clear for us that if we live by this, we will be blessed by this God. That in and of itself, that level of certainty was unprecedented for anybody that existed in this time. Well, when the Christians came along, they used those same scriptures. They worshipped that same God. The difference was that now Christ has come and has actually given us his spirit. So we've got scripture, which is God's will, and this is what God wants for us. But God has given this, this additional layer, this additional gift on top of this scripture, which is his presence himself in us, revealing to us what it is that he wants, what it is that he's doing, what it is that he's working in our lives at every moment. And Paul says it so well to the Ephesians. And he's praying for the Ephesians and he says to them, for this reason, ever since I, so this is Ephesians 2.15, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Think about that. He gave you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better, so that you may know what he wants, so that you may understand who he is and what it is that he's doing in your life. So you always have this assurance of what's going on and where things are going. So that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So what was it about the Christian message that was so appealing? Well, this Christian message didn't come with priests. It didn't come with a set of uh, elites. Men whose job it was was to somehow perhaps interpret whatever these vague signs are from the gods. You didn't need any of that. He gave us his spirit, he gave us himself. He said, I will come into you and I will tell you what I want. I will reveal myself to you and I will guide you. I will give you that assurance of whatever it is that you're doing, wherever it is that you're going, what you need to be doing. So this. Was an incredible thing. This, compared to what else was on offer from the god Apollo, this was like nothing anyone had ever heard of before. And so, naturally, that would have such a strong appeal for the people of this world. Well, that's our second reason. We've got one God and we've got a God who brings assurance. But what about the practical needs? What about your everyday life? What does this God have to offer for the everyday life of? the people in this time well that's what we're going to look at next week so join me for that thank you so much i hope this has been helpful and i'll see you then all the best